Welcome to the Life Talk podcast, sponsored by Life Culture Canada. Today's guest is Michael Swagstra, who is here to talk about hell. We will be discussing three views on hell, including traditionalism, conditionalism, and universalism, the biblical support for each view, and why talking about hell is important. Please join us for this important conversation. everyone. I'm so excited that Michael Swagstra is here to talk about hell. I realize excited isn't usually a word associated with hell, but it's a really fascinating topic once you start digging into it. Michael is a high school teacher, a writer, a columnist, a city councillor, and a wealth of information in general. So I'm really happy to have him here. Welcome here, Michael. Well, thank you very much, Susan. It's a pleasure to be with you. When did you first start being interested in examining the nature of hell? Well, the topic has always been of interest uh, to me. Uh, I, throughout my, basically my entire life as a Christian, and because I became a Christian at a very young age, I would say that I first started seriously looking at it uh, just about 25, about 25 years ago. Uh, that was when I had, uh, shortly after I'd finished my first university degree, and I remember uh, doing a lot of additional reading about it and looking at some of the different perspectives. And uh, so it was a topic that, uh, it's a topic I think is important. And so uh, it's been an interest of mine for, uh, for about 25 years. So you were a little bit ahead of your time in terms of, I think, being interested in that topic. I think it's a little more popular to look at it now. I know growing up evangelical, I didn't actually realize there were other perspectives on hell other than the traditional view of eternal conscious torment. I did think twice about verses like John 3.16, where it says, whoever believes in him shall not perish. Um, It seems like an ending when you talk about perish, not something that's ongoing. So I know for myself, I had thought of some of those things, but hadn't really examined them. Um, But as I've gotten older, I realize there are some other perspectives on hell, including conditionalism and universalism. Could you please go through the three main views of hell and define and describe what each is? Yeah, there really are. There really is more than one view on hell, and uh, I, I'll briefly define each one of them. And uh, just to be clear, just because there are different views, that doesn't mean that they're all valid or anything of that sort. Obviously, we have to look at what the Bible says in order to uh, to come to an accurate understanding. Um, you've got the uh, obviously the traditional view, and the reason it's called the traditional view is because it's held by the majority of Christians throughout the last two thousand years, and that view is eternal conscious torment. And essentially, that view states that anyone who is an unbeliever who has not accepted Christ after they die, uh, they will uh, be subject to uh, torment that never ends, and that is the nature of the eternal punishment they experience. Uh, the second view, which is uh, growing in popularity, although it's still a minority view, is called conditional immortality, also known as annihilationism. And uh, the conditional immortality view, or conditionalism as it's also known, uh, states that the that eternal punishment ultimately is the final and irrevocable death and destruction of unbelievers. So anyone who has not accepted Christ and uh, after they die, uh, the nature of their eternal punishment is that um, after a uh, undefined period of conscious suffering, uh, their existence comes to an end. And so uh, when, uh, when God says to Adam and Eve that, uh, that when they eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree and good and evil, that they will die, 
Uh, the conditionalist says that's exactly uh, what what death is, and that's the uh, uh, that in particular the second death, the cessation of uh, of all being. Uh, the third view, which is definitely a minority in evangelical circles, a much smaller minority than even conditionalism, is the universalist view, um, often called universal reconciliation or total reconciliation. This view holds that hell is uh, temporary, that there is a period of eternal conscious torment, uh, but that will ultimately come to an end, that all people will ultimately be reconciled to Christ. And so a universalist would take uh, a passage in Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, as a hopeful sign that everyone, no matter how firmly they rejected Christ in this life, will eventually be reconciled after death. And so, in a nutshell, those are the three views. You have the traditionalist view of eternal conscious torment, you have the conditionalist view of eternal uh, irrevocable destruction, and you have the universalist view uh, that uh, the punishment is temporary and that everyone will ultimately be saved in the end. Could you take some time and maybe define hell as it's translated in the Bible? Because it does appear quite often, is every time the word hell is used, is it the same uh, meaning? Well, it's, it's a good question, Susan, and frankly, it's a very important question, because uh, hell, of course, uh, is an English word, and when we look at our English Bibles, it's easy to, uh, to miss some things. And this is particularly true when you're using one of the older translations, like the King James Version of the Bible, where you'll see the word hell used multiple times in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the reality is, is that there are actually, in the Greek, there are actually three different words uh, that, uh, that, are, uh, that are translated as hell. But there are three words that have three different meanings. Uh, and so, for example, you have the, uh, uh, you have the word Hades, uh, which is uh, uh, which was the place of the dead. Uh, that's the approximate equivalent of in the Old Testament the word Sheol, uh, which is often translated grave, but also sometimes translated as hell. But it, ultimately, Sheol and Hades is simply where everyone goes when they die, because it literally just simply means you know the place of the dead. Uh, you have the word Gehenna. Uh, which appears about uh, 12 times in the New Testament. Uh, and that, uh, uh, that is the one that is uh, typically, that's where the debate revolves around, because that's where, we're, where Jesus, when he's talking, Jesus is talking about eternal punishment, he's using uh, words like, uh, he's using the word of Gehenna. Uh, if you go in the Old Testament, you go in Second Kings, uh, there's a reference to uh, uh, the Valley of uh, Gehenna, uh, which was a place of basically destruction, where you had this, this pit. Uh, a lot of commentators believe it was a garbage pit that was burning constantly, and so when Jesus wanted, was really emphasizing uh, destruction of unbelievers, he would reference, you know, the fires of hell, and that's Gehenna. The third word, which is translated hell, actually only appears once in the New Testament, and that would be in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. Uh, that's the word Tartarus, and that's the, uh, the prison uh, for, the, uh, uh, for the demons, for the, uh, for the ungodly angels. Uh, we don't have a lot of information about Tartarus because it appears only once and only in reference to the, uh, uh, the, the rebellious angels. And so really when you look at it, there's, uh, the, it's more complicated than, uh, than, than it appears initially when you're just reading the English Bible. Now the newer translations, like English Standard Version, for example, you'll often will actually put uh, Hades in there, and uh, uh, and so you will actually see some of those some of those differences. But old tra older translations will just translate all of those hell, and that's where it's easy to miss some key things. All right, and then I wanted to ask you um, 
in terms of what's said in the New Testament versus the Old Testament, uh, could you expand on that a little bit in terms of some people think, you know, we need to ignore the Old Testament and what it says uh, and just go with what the New Testament is saying. Can you just speak a little bit about that and how it relates to this topic? Well, absolutely. And uh, one of the most common mistakes that uh, the Christians make when wanting to look into this question of the afterlife and of hell is we go straight to the New Testament. But the New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old Testament. It's, it literally is filled with quotations and historical allusions. And so it's really important to start where, with the Old Testament. And so I'll give you an example. Uh, the Old Testament actually doesn't say a lot about the afterlife but it does give a few hints. And one of the most important passages in the Old Testament is at the very end of the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, it concludes by saying, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now, this is, it's very interesting here, because if you're a traditionalist and you believe in eternal conscious torment, uh, you tend to gravitate very quickly to the reference to the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched. And so this passage is pointed to by traditionalists as being strong support for eternal conscious torment. However, if you are a conditionalist, if you believe in, uh, in, in annihilation in the end, you, you look at the same passage and you go, well, hold on a second here. This passage is literally specifically talking about dead bodies. And so where it talks about the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched, the emphasis here is on, on the fact that, uh, uh, that the fire cannot be brought to an end. The only thing that brings the fire to an end is when it is finished consuming. And so, but that's an important passage. And so I'm just going to skip here to a New Testament passage. I'm going to go to Mark chapter 9. And you're going to quote one of the strongest statements that Jesus makes about, about hell, starting at verse uh, 40, uh, 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believed me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and if you were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, this passage is far more understandable if you're reading it in the context of Isaiah chapter 66, which is what Jesus is, is alluding to here. And so he's talking about hell. He's talking about Gehenna. That's the Greek word, by the way, which is being translated in Mark 9, verses 42 to 48. And Jesus describes it as this place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So if, again, if you're a traditionalist, you, you, you assume based on reading this, that this is talking about eternal conscious punishment. But if you're a conditionalist, you say, hold on a second here. The passage Jesus is quoting is talking about what is happening to dead bodies. And so uh, does that reasonably mean eternal conscious torment in that case? And I'll mention as well, another very important uh, uh, passage here in the Old Testament, uh, because there's just so many allusions to it in the New Testament, it would be in Genesis chapter 19 where we read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, chapter 19, verse 27, 
And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so you have this complete and irrevocable destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what type of fire destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, it was a fire that it couldn't be stopped. Uh, in fact, it couldn't be quenched. Now, let's go in the New Testament, because again, this is, this is uh, directly referenced. I'm just going to go to uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, and uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, where it states the following in verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And so the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is an example, is a prelude for what is going to happen to the ungodly. They, are, they were destroyed by unquenchable fire. And that is ultimately what is going to happen to the to unbelievers, to the, to the ungodly. Uh, in Jude chapter 7, which is the second last book of the Bible, uh, sorry, Jude verse 7, there's only one chapter in Jude, uh, it, states, it states the following. Uh, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So you see that in order to properly interpret some of these passages that talk about destruction and punishment, it's important to take a look at what what is being referred to from the Old Testament. What we're seeing here very clearly is that this is a final destruction. And so whether you are a traditionalist or conditionalist, one thing that both agree on is that it's eternal. It never comes to an end. And so the word that's translated eternal, by the way, in the New Testament, and for example, Matthew 25, is ionos, which simply means uh, unending. And so uh, it, it never comes to an end. And this is the problem with the universalist view, because universalists uh, believe that, again, the punishment is temporary. But the, the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, their destruction, there's no indication that Sodom and Gomorrah are ever coming back. And so uh, while conditionalists and traditionalists disagree on the length of the conscious torment that unbelievers experience, both sides certainly agree that this is irrevocable, total, complete, and will never end. And so again, just important to make sure that we're looking at as much context within the Bible as, within the Bible as possible. So I'd like to know why we should even talk about this. The traditional view has been the majority view throughout church history, like, why are we even talking about this? Doesn't that alone say, you know, this is probably the correct view? Well, it's, it wouldn't be called the traditional view if it wasn't uh, the majority view throughout church history. That, that is why it's called the traditionalist uh, viewpoint. Um, I guess what I would say is that uh, a majority opinion doesn't automatically make something correct, and that's true in theology, and it's true in other in other areas as well. Uh, so, for example, uh, there are probably a lot of Christians listening to this podcast who affirm believers' baptism. That you believe that a uh, that that baptism should take place only after a confession of faith, rather than at uh, shortly after birth. If you believe that, you're in the minority view. 
That's the, that, the infant baptism is the majority of you throughout church history, and it's the majority of you today. Um, and I'm not just talking about the branch of Roman Catholicism and Orthodox. I'm talking about, you know, the large Protestant denominations like Presbyterians and Lutherans and Anglicans that all have, uh, that all regularly practice infant baptism. But obviously, if you affirm believer's baptism, you go, well, no, the important thing is we look at what the Bible actually says. Now, again, we're not getting into a discussion of baptism, but rather just to point out that obviously you don't just look at a view and say this is in the majority— and then say, well, that settles it. Because if that were the case, then Martin Luther was really foolish for starting this whole Reformation and his 95 Theses, because he was certainly in the minority at the time. Now, just to be clear, the, the different viewpoints on hell, um, each side, whether you're a traditionalist, a conditionalist, or frankly, even a universalist, they will all argue that their views start with the New Testament church. I mean, frankly, uh, if you don't believe your view started with the, with the New Testament church, then you're kind of acknowledging it's not in the Bible. So, of course, you're going to make that argument. But the reality is, is that as far as getting into explicit statements about the exact nature of hell— you have to go a couple of centuries in on church history because the New Testament obviously uh, makes many statements about hell, and those are debated uh, uh, by Christians uh, in terms of traditionalist and conditionalist and all that. Um, but if you look at some of the early church fathers, the ones that came shortly after the disciples within the first couple hundred years, you have to go to Tertullian in 208 AD, who made the first really explicit eternal conscious torment statement where he talked about fire unending and all the unbelievers being given a measure of immortality. And so that's the first explicit statement of eternal conscious torment. All the previous statements were basically just quoting New Testament language of unquenchable fire and eternal punishment, which, of course, those are the exact passages that we're discussing right now in terms of what do those actually mean. Uh, when um, among conditionalists, of course, uh, there have been conditionalist uh, scholars throughout church history, um, and there are obviously a number of very prominent uh, tr uh, conditionalist scholars today, uh, people such as um, you know, Dr. John Stackhouse, uh, Dr. Preston Sprinkle would come to mind as pretty well-known uh, conditionalist scholars. And even among universalism, universalism, the first early church father to explicitly hold that view was Origen, uh, who, was, who lived in the uh, third century, and he believed that hell was an, ultimately a place of purification. And again, uh, he didn't get a lot of traction for that. In fact, his views were largely condemned uh, at the time and, and shortly afterwards. But just going, just in terms of this question of, you know, this is the view that's held by the majority of Christians, does that mean it's right? Not necessarily. Um, we don't set tradition aside. I, I would agree that, yes, there is, we certainly need to make sure that we don't dismiss something uh, that's held by most Christians, because many times that means it is supported by the Bible, but it doesn't always mean that. And I've just given a few examples here of where it's important to still look at the Bible. What does the Bible say? Be like the Bereans. It's described in, in the book of Acts that they took the time to diligently search the scriptures to see if these things are true. That's not something you do just in the first century. We're still supposed to be doing it now. So, well, I don't believe, and I know you don't believe this either, that our perspective on hell is a salvation issue. It certainly does have implications for our faith. I think particularly as it relates to free will, at least in my opinion. For example, the traditional view of hell carries a lot of fear for people. Um, so are people choosing faith in Jesus because they want to avoid hell or because they want to follow Jesus? The conditional view takes fear of suffering eternal conscious torment out of the equation, so the choice to follow Jesus seems more in line with free will. 
In other words, choosing to follow Jesus, not out of fear, but out of love. And with universalism, one doesn't need to choose to follow Jesus um, this side of death because they can change their mind after they die. So what are your thoughts on how one's view of hell impacts his or her faith journey? Well, let me start by saying that uh, I think that universalism uh, has a very weak case. Uh, And frankly, I don't think it's an acceptable evangelical option. I just don't find the biblical evidence at all compelling for it. uh, And I think it's ultimately destructive towards the the focus that we have on missions and evangelism, because it really does take that urgency out. And I want to be clear as well that the conditionalist view isn't saying that hell isn't bad. It is really bad. Um, eternal destruction is, 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 is a horrible prospect. Um, when you look at, in the United States, what's the worst punishment you can get? Well, capital punishment. Why is it the worst? It's not because of the amount of suffering involved in the process of dying. It's the fact you're going to die, and that's it. And there's no coming back from it that is, uh, it is final. And so there are a variety of reasons why people become Christians. And I believe that God can use, um, uh, can use a whole lot of ways of bringing people to himself. And I'll even go so far as to say that God can even use theological error to draw people to himself. So, for example, if you assume for a moment that the, that the traditionalist view is wrong and that it's not eternal conscious torment, it doesn't negate the fact that if someone came to Christ because they genuinely believed uh, that uh, uh, in eternal conscious torment and that was a motivating factor— no reason in the world why God couldn't use that error to still draw people to himself. He could certainly, if he could, if he could use the horrible sin of Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery uh, to bring, uh, to rescue all the nations from terrible famine at the time, I think he can use a faulty belief to, to draw people to himself. Similarly, with the conditionalist view, if let's say that view happens to be incorrect, it doesn't change the fact that conditionalist Christians tend to be just as strong as on evangelism as, as others. And so you take uh, the largest uh, conditionalist uh, denomination, which would be Seventh-day Adventists, and obviously they have some views on a variety of things that are different than a lot of mainstream evangelicalism, but they're really big on evangelism. They're really big on missions around the world. So obviously their conditionalist view on the nature of hell has had no detrimental impact on their fervor for evangelism. And so uh, I would ultimately say that uh, the view, it is still important. I mean, I, I wouldn't spend time reading about this and thinking about this topic if I didn't think it wasn't, if I didn't think it was important. Uh, I just want to make sure that we're clear this is not a salvation issue. It's not an issue I think that Christians even need to divide on. Uh, for the record, I think that you should be able to be involved in a member of the same church, whether you're a traditionalist or a conditionalist. I really do uh, believe that. So there are Christians who don't want to talk about things like this. They have been taught certain things, and they are concerned that challenging what they've already been taught will shake their faith or make them a heretic or, quote-unquote, a progressive Christian. What would you say to that? How do we know if we are reading into the Bible so it aligns with what we want it to say versus understanding what it really says? Well, I guess you have to look at our motives in terms of, like, why are we uh, looking into this topic? And, and the reason we would look into this topic is that it's important. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven uh, when, uh, when he spoke. So it's obviously important. There's uh, many references to uh, uh, just the dire fate of unbelievers and just how important it is to accept Christ. And so uh, it's important that we seek to understand, well, what exactly did Jesus mean when he warned of eternal punishment? And Matthew 25, 46, where it says, you know, that the righteous will go away into eternal life and the wicked shall go away into eternal punishment. That's that sheep and the goats uh, passage. And so... 
uh, if we're going to spend time considering what does eternal life mean, uh, I think we should have some understanding of what eternal punishment means. And because the two are are put in direct parallel with each other. The, the eternal life goes, a goes on just as long as the eternal punishment. And so if the punishment doesn't go on forever, whatever the nature of the punishment is, that raises serious questions about how long eternal life is going to go on. And again, the key word there, ionos in the Greek, that simply means everlasting, ongoing, forever, permanent. Uh, it, just, it just goes on and on. And so uh, it's an important topic because it's, we should seek to understand to the greatest degree possible uh, what did Jesus actually mean when he said these things, what does the Bible actually teach? So one story that often or always comes up in talking about this is Luke 16 with Lazarus and the rich man. I'm just wondering if you can talk about that particular passage. Yeah, the this passage can be found in Luke 16, uh, starting uh, from verses 19 to 31. And uh, just in a nutshell, for, for the listeners who aren't as familiar with it, basically it's a story about a rich man who's living in luxury, and you have a poor man whose name is Lazarus, who's living in complete poverty, he's covered in sores, and the rich man is doing nothing to help him out. They end up both dying, and then it says that, uh, uh, that Lazarus goes off to paradise, where he's in, a with Ab in Abraham's bosom, and, the, uh, uh, and then it says that the rich man is in torment, and he asks Lazarus, you know, please come dip your tongue, you know, tell, or he tells Abraham, tell Lazarus to come and dip his finger on my tongue so that way it could cool off. And, uh, and then he also asks, please send Lazarus to go tell my five brothers about this, uh, 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 about this terrible place so that way they don't come here. And that concludes with, the, with Abraham telling him that, you know, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, then they're not going to believe even if someone should rise from the dead. So that's, that's basically the passage. And traditionalists tend to gravitate to this one, and because of the fact that it's talking about conscious torment, a lot of passages, it'll even say the word hell. Uh, and so they'll say, see, this is an open and shut case. That's simply what the view of hell is. However, a uh, few things to note here. First of all, the word translated as hell here is actually Hades, place of the dead. And at the best you could argue is that this is talking about the intermediate state, uh, which is a completely separate issue uh, from the final state, because the intermediate state is what happens after you die, but prior to the final resurrection. And again, you know, Christians have different views on that one as well, but we're not going to get into that uh, at this point. Um, but what's important to note here is that this is not a literal story. This is a parable. It's in a section where Jesus is telling parables. And the way you read a parable is you don't mine it for details. You don't, so you think about, for example, the parable of the prodigal son. You don't spend all your time trying to figure out, you know, what does this person represent and this person, what do the pigs represent and all that. No, no, no. You read to the end of the parable and you get the punchline at the end. And there's always a punchline which sends a powerful message. And so, you look for the punchline here, and you find it at the end of the parable, and, and the punchline in verse 31 is that if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be they be convinced if someone should rise from the, from the dead. And so Jesus is telling this parable to illustrate the fact that if people have rejected the testimony of Moses and the prophets, the testimony of the Old Testament, nothing is going to convince them, not even someone rising from the dead. And ironically, after telling this parable, you can read about it in John chapter 11, it, uh, I believe it's John chapter 11, where Jesus did raise someone from the dead, a guy by the name of Lazarus, and that was a literal story. And what happened after Jesus ro uh, raised Lazarus from the dead? 
the, the priests and the scholars were so disturbed by this and so upset, and because they couldn't deny what had happened, they made plans to try to put Lazarus to death. That is literally what they're trying to do. And so this passage here is really not talking about it's not talking about hell at all. It's, it's certainly not talking about Gehenna. It's not talking about the nature of eternal punishment. Because if we were going to interpret this as a literal story, then we would actually have to argue that, you know, that people in heaven and hell can literally see each other and talk to each other and ask each other for things. And I don't know of any Christian who actually believes that. So if you're not going to mind that aspect for details, then we probably should look at this as a parable with a punchline and make sure that we're not appropriating it into uh, in, in, in trying to answer a question that it really isn't addressing. Okay, speaking of, I appreciate that, speaking of literal interpretations, there's a verse in Revelation as well that's traditionally used, Revelation 20.10, I believe, and it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, could you also comment on that one? Because that one's traditionally used by traditionalists and interpreted literally, um, and maybe is the verse that's used the most to support uh, eternal conscious torment. So if you could just comment on that one as well. Yeah, I would say that this is the passage that provides the strongest view, uh, 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 evidence for the traditional view of eternal conscious torment, without a doubt, because it explicitly states that uh, that they uh, that they will be the devil and the uh, and the false prophet, the devil who deceived them, thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so, what you have to do is you have to sort of ask. Uh, do we know what this, the full context around this passage, and how literally is this to be taken? Uh, what's challenging is that this is in the most symbolic book of the Bible. Revelation, every Christian agrees that Revelation is the most symbolic book of the Bible, and it's filled with numbers that are symbolic, it's filled with descriptions of beasts, multiple heads and all that, uh, that are obviously uh, symbolic. And so there's disagreement, for example, among Christians about the beast and the false prophet. Um, are they literal people? Um, are they symbols for institutions? You, you'll find Christians on all different sides of that. And so I would say that it's the hardest passage for conditionalists to interpret because of the fact that it talks about them being tormented day and night forever and ever. But even in this passage, it's talking about the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. Even here, it's not talking about people, if you're going to go really literal. And so uh, what I would suggest is... Uh, it's a passage that I would argue that does lean towards the traditionalist view if you take it literally. But is it wise to take one verse or one passage in the book of Revelation, the most symbolic book of the Bible, and then use that to build your foundation of everything else? And so what I would suggest is that if the general tenor and the rest of the Bible supports eternal conscious torment, then yes, use this as the capstone to make that argument. However, if most of the rest of the Bible is, seems to talk about uh, about eternal punishment as being final and irrevocable destruction using those Old Testament allusions, and this passage seems to be an exception to that, then we need to ask about, you know, maybe there are other ways that we can interpret this passage, and maybe it's a symbolic way of referencing the final and irrevocable destruction of evil, uh, because there's just so much symbolism within, uh, within Revelation. Okay, so reasonable cases can be made for both traditionalism and conditionalism, I would say not for universalism. So we'll leave that out for now. So in your opinion, if you look at the overall Bible, not just, you know, picking out certain 
you know, passages, where do you think it leans? Do you think the Bible leans towards traditionalism or conditionalism? I think you could make a reasonable case for either one. And, uh, um, and, but I will say that I think the, the evidence leans in favor of conditionalism, and that's because of the fact that uh, when, uh, when we, we see you know, what, the, what the punishment for sin is, for example, um, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, um, that's what it is. It's death. It's, and, and it's the second death. It's, it's the death from which there is no return. It's that complete and irrevocable destruction. So I would, just, I, would, I would suggest that the evidence leans in favor of conditionalism because of the fact that you look at the flood of Noah, uh, you look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, both two passages talking about the destruction of sinners, both passages that are referenced in the New Testament as being an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And in both those cases, for example, the flood of Noah, what was the punishment they experienced? Was it the drowning process, or was it the fact they died? And obviously it's the fact they died. That was the punishment. And obviously the process of dying was unpleasant, but the ultimate punishment was the death itself. Same thing with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. What was the what was the uh, what was the punishment that they received? Well, the the process by which they died was unpleasant, but the ultimate punishment was the death that they experienced. And so again, we go to the New Testament passages that we were referencing earlier that talk about Sodom and Gomorrah in particular being an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. The emphasis seems to be on the complete and irrevocable destruction from which they will never return. So um, on the whole. Um, I think the evidence leans in favor of conditionalism. Now, I want to be clear that this does not mean that I think that uh, the traditionalist view is completely far out there and there's no evidence for it. It's a view that I held for, for a fair bit of time before, and I think you can make a reasonable case for it. Um, but I think on the whole, when you look at the Bible you know, in context and you look at the, you know, the, the culture in which it's written and, 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 and how things are described, I think it does lean in favor of conditionalism. So I know you've taught a couple of courses on this topic in an evangelical Bible college, I believe. So I'm just making the assumption that most of the students who have come probably have the traditional view when they come into the classroom. And these are probably pastors in training and that kind of thing. I'm just wondering, what's the response like when you teach a class full of people who, you know, mainly have a traditionalist view and how do they respond and what's the outcome kind of at the end? Well, the, the course I taught was called Three Views on Hell, and it was at Steinbeck Bible College. And the and basically what I did was it was four sessions. The first session I just laid, I spent time going over, you know, church history on this topic, whatever some of the, you know, Christians of the past said, also looking at some of the key words in the Old Testament, the New Testament, just looking at the, at the passages. And then I spent the next three classes, the next three sessions, examining traditionalism, conditionalism, and universalism. I spent the first uh, half of the, the evening uh, putting forward, forth the strongest case that I possibly could for that position, and spent the second half ripping it apart. And I did that for all three uh, in order. And so frankly, uh, at the end, when they asked what was my view, they didn't know based on what I had presented. I had presented them all you know, pretty strongly. They figured out I wasn't a universalist because no matter how hard you go, it's pretty tough to make a compelling biblical case for universalism. But I did pretty well for explaining both traditionalism and conditionalism. 
um, the response was favorable. Yes, a majority of people who were in that class held the traditional view. There were some people who le- in it who leaned toward the conditionalist view, but everyone was very receptive to, to hearing what the Bible uh, says on this topic, and they appreciated the fact that I wasn't seeking to change anyone's view, and that's frankly not even what I'm seeking to do right now. It's, what's important is to understand um, w- that, there, that there is more than one way to interpret some of these passages, and that it's not—you don't have to go liberal or progressive or anything of that sort uh, to sort of to acknowledge that you can make a reasonable case for either traditionalism or conditionalism, and that it doesn't entail a liberal uh, interpretation of the Bible at all. You can, uh, uh, you can interpret the Bible um, very much uh, you know, in terms of taking it seriously and as literally as possible based on what the context is, uh, whether you're traditionalist or conditionalist. And personally, I've leaned to the conditionalist view for basically 25 years since I really, really started looking into it. Um, I just felt the evidence leaned further in that direction. I will mention an interesting little tidbit that uh, uh, back in the early 90s, uh, a former professor at Providence University College, then it was just Providence College and Seminary, uh, Dr. Larry Dixon had written a very well-known book called The Other Side of the Good News. And he attended the same church that I attended at the time, and I actually got a personalized signed copy of the book from him, and I was only in high school at the time, and I remember devouring it, great book, Larry Dixon's great teacher, he strongly holds the traditional view, still does now, and uh, I I found it to be an excellent book. Uh, Again, when I looked into more deeply and looking at some of the contrary arguments, people, scholars such as Edward Fudge, who wrote The Fire That Consumes, and I saw that, okay, there's a pretty strong you know, case that could be made for conditionalism here, and so I reevaluated some of uh, some of the things I interpreted on there. But again, uh, just to be just want to be clear that I respect people who hold the traditionalist view, and um, I, I have no problem with that. I just think it's important that we not draw the boundaries of evangelicalism too tightly here. It's important we hold to the gospel. It's important we hold to evangelical essentials, and I believe that one of those is is that there's only two fates. I mean, Hebrews 9:27 says that you know that is appointed unto man to die once, and then the judgment. That's it. Two options, and there's no coming back. The Bible is quite clear about that. If we agree upon that, I think there's room for discussion and debate about the precise nature of the punishment that's described uh, in the Bible. All right. So in summary. Hell is real and cannot be reversed. The main difference is either eternal conscious torment is taught from a traditionalist perspective or ceasing to exist is taught in conditionalism. So at the end of the day, both those perspectives are legitimate positions based on scripture. Yes. Thank you so much for being here today, Michael. That was just very educational and insightful and I really appreciate you taking the time to come and join us. I'm just wondering, I know this is kind of putting you on the spot, do you have any recommendations or suggestions for podcasts or books or that type of thing if people want to learn more about this? Oh, absolutely. You know, the the first place that I would go is or would be one of those three issues or four issues books as they're common in evangelicalism. I, I would go to the best book I would recommend on this is called Two Views on Hell. 
and that's by Robert Peterson and Edward Fudge. Robert Peterson, a well-known traditionalist scholar, Edward Fudge, a well-known conditionalist scholar. It's a full-length book where they both put forward their positions and then sp- spend time uh, rebutting each other's viewpoints. So I would go there if you want to see both sides expressed very clearly. There are also um, uh, there are also some four issues books on hell where the universalist view is included, uh, and also uh, where the Roman Catholic view and purgatory is uh, is looked at too. Uh, that that uh, that could be interesting. Um, I would also for those of you who want to learn more about conditionalism, um, rethinking hell. If you just go to re- just type Google rethinking hell, that that uh, the ministry web web page will come up. You'll find all sorts of articles and podcasts on the topic. In fact, there's a rethinking hell podcast that's done by Chris Date a well-known traditionalist uh, scholar. Uh, To learn more about traditionalism, uh, certainly lots of books and places you could go. Um, Larry Dixon's book, The Other Side of the Good News, I mentioned it before, excellent book, you know, if you want to get a, a very readable understanding of traditionalism. Anything written by Dr. Robert Peterson uh, is, 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 is also quite good. Uh, and, and they've also, so there are some good books that have uh, been put out by traditionalists that cr- critique the uh, universalist, uh, uh, sorry, the, uh, the conditionalist view. And if you want to learn more about universalism, you know, one of those four views books where universalism is, is included, you could look at. Uh, Robin Perry is the one evangelical Bible scholar that I know of who identifies explicitly as evangelical, who's a universalist. So uh, P-A-R-R-Y, Robin Perry. So if you look, uh, if you search his name, you'll find uh, uh, some things he's written on the topic if you want to learn more about the universalist view. Okay, thanks again, Michael. I really appreciate that. And thank you for listening. I hope you learned a lot and you found that information valuable. And I also hope that you'll join us again on the Life Talk podcast.